Hey everybody, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to today from a train yard near my home because I want to talk about something that trains do that your body also does, something called recombination and the amazing things that we've recently learned about this unbelievable phenomenon that happens in biology. But before we get there, I just want to thank everyone for a great year. We're wrapping up 2023 now. This is going to be my 89th Biblical Genetics episode. Now, I know I don't come out with them very often, but I do shoot for twice a month. Usually I don't quite make it twice a month per year, but I'm working really hard to bring things for you to consider. I'm trying to encourage Christians. I'm also trying to encourage the evolutionists, even though I know most of the people of that mindset won't watch my videos, but at least for you, the person wondering about such things, I bring some encouragement to you. And hopefully today is going to be a tremendous encouragement because what you're about to learn is going to be amazing. Now, looking at trains, Let's talk about recombination, how DNA is divided up from one generation to the other as eggs and sperm are being produced using a train analogy. Imagine that there's this very large and complicated train yard and a train pulls into the train yard and a worker, a railroad man, railroad woman maybe, comes up and he uncouples two of the cars. And then another train pulls up right next to it and in the same exact place, he or she uncouples two of the cars. Then one of the train pulls away, then the other train pulls away, and then they back up on the other track. And now you have just swapped the ends of two different trains onto a different engine. Now, if they're, if some person went and tagged all the trains in like red graffiti, but the other one he tagged it in blue graffiti, then all the cars are red or blue. And now when they pulled away, switched and backed up again, you have a train where the back end is red, the front end is blue, or the back end is blue and the front end is red. That's kind of similar to what happens in your cells. But it's a lot more complicated than that. A whole lot more complicated. And as we dig into this, we're going to learn some of the new stuff we just learned in science that are, are absolutely shocking. Things I didn't know literally until just a couple of weeks ago when I read this one particular paper. I said, what? This is shocking and amazing and beautiful and awesome. Okay. In your body you have probably 50 trillion cells in your body, different estimates out there. I'm not sure exactly what the number is. Let's say 50 trillion cells in your body. Every single one of those cells has been generated from a, an egg, a fertilized egg. The egg copied its chromosomes and then split in half. And then those cells copied their chromosomes and split in half and it happened again and again and again to produce you. But you also have a subset of cells called reproductive cells. And if you're a woman, you're producing eggs. If you're a man, you're producing sperm. Those go through a slightly different process. The first process is called mitosis. That's just the dividing of the cell. Meiosis, though, is a double dividing of the cell where the chromosomes are copied, scrambled, and then the resultant cell only has half as much DNA as the original cell. So you have a genome of 3 billion letters, but you have two copies of that genome in your cells. You have 6 billion letters of DNA usually. An egg or a sperm only has three billion. They have one copy of each chromosome instead of two copies of each chromosome. You okay with that so far? You learned that in high school biology. It's something that even though we kind of forget all these things, it's something you probably learned at one point in time. The process of meiosis is something that happens in all sexually reproducing organisms. That is not bacteria, but more complicated things. In fact, the process of sexual reproduction is one of the things on our 15 questions for evolutionist campaigns that we ran, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. In fact, that was question number eight. Mr. Evolutionist, 
please explain the origin of sexual reproduction. It's incredibly complicated. Now, we have to be careful here already. I don't want to use an argument from incredulity. Oh, that's just stupid. I can't believe you believe that. That's ridiculous. But we are going to use some arguments from probability. Now, a probability argument, you can never prove that it's not true, even though it's not likely to happen, but you can make it less and less and less and less likely to have ever occurred when you look at the numbers. And that's what we're going to be doing here. We're going to look at probability. The origin of this system just flies in the face of rational thought. If you're a skeptic about the Bible or Christianity, or you're not a believer in any higher power, um, you got a lot of explaining to do because you have to explain where an incredibly complex system that is a lot more complicated than we even thought last month, according to what I just read, where that came from. So that's questions for evolutionists. Question number eight. You can find that on creation.com. I just type in 15 questions or something like that. Come right up. In fact, after that was published, that was Don Batten's brainchild, Dr. Don Batten in Australia. After that was published, we had entire websites dedicated to trying to refute our 15 questions. So we wrote responses to the supposed refutations, and I think we came out pretty good. Now, just last June, about six months ago, I came out with a video called Geeking Out About DNA Repair. And I talked about this new understanding we have about DNA repair systems. And the scientists that looked at all the genes involved, and they discovered brand new DNA repair in, uh, systems we didn't even know existed, and multiple proteins that were involved in DNA repair that we didn't even know was involved in DNA repair. So that's an origin of life question. The maintenance of DNA, the reproduction of DNA, the fixing of DNA, all those things must happen in that first primordial cell, and yet the systems designed to do those things are incredibly complicated. So where those systems come from, Mr. Evolutionist, I'll leave that for you to answer at some other time. We're now going to ramp it up here and talk about similar things in the world of sexual reproduction because the system is super duper complicated. Now, I learned a long time ago that on your chromosomes, there's about one recombination on average per long chromosome arm per generation. To explain that, it would be like you have 23 pairs of trains. Now, each train is a chromosome. You have 23 pairs of them. And in each train, something is decoupled and things are shuffled around to the other corresponding pair. So you have like train number 1A and train number 1B. Well, someone decouples them, the engines pull out, they turn around, they back up, and they redo it. Or they, they reconnect. And that's true in chromosome or train number 2A and 2B, 3A, 3B, 4A, 4B. We get to the X chromosome. If you're female, it works normally. But if you're male, you don't have any recombination on the X chromosome. Okay. But it, of course, it is more complicated than that. Much more complicated. Because the centromere is what is passed. The centromere is the middle part of the chromosome. Most chromosomes have a centromere in the middle. Some of them have it at the end. So there's not an extra arm. but Or at least it's a short arm there anyway. But if you have um, a system like this, you'd have to say, imagine a train where the caboose is in the middle. That's the centromere. And there's an engine on each side. So one can go forward or backwards and you can move the train back and forth, but there's a caboose in the middle. The caboose, someone decides, okay, caboose 1A is going to go down the road. Caboose 1B is going to stay here. But they need to recombine the train cars. So you take caboose 1A and a railway person walks down the tracks to some point, decouples a couple of cars, and decouples the cars in the same place and on 1B. 
And then from the caboose on 1A, they go up the tracks. They find a place. They decouple some cars. Train pulls away. They decouple the cars on the other track. Train pulls away. They switch places. So the result is a train with a caboose that hasn't changed, but the ends have changed. And that's going to happen 23 times in every cell, or 22 if you're a male. That's a lot of switching. That's a lot of rearranging. That's a very complicated system, but it's even more complicated than that. There's a protein called PRDM9. That protein attaches to only specific points in the genome. There are PRDM9 attachment sites. Those are the places where recombination happens. There's about 30,000 of these places in an average genome. Those are called hotspots. And in between, recombination hardly ever happens. So about 2% of the genome is involved in recombination. The rest of it is pretty inactive as far as recombination goes. So the train analogy actually works really well. The couplings between the cars are the hotspots. The train car itself can't be recombined. It's a unit. It's a block. So in the program Mendel's Accountant, which I've talked about several times on this show, that John Sanford and colleagues, John Baumgartner, a couple other people, Wes Brewer, thinking of all the other people involved, they wrote this program to model human populations. They used boxes or, or bins where they could throw mutations, and those bins were inherited as a cassette from one generation to the next. It's very similar to what happens in biology. Recombination happens in specific places, and everything in between stays the same unless it's mutated, and then any mutations that are in that block are inherited as a set. That's biology. It applies very well to our train car analogy. So we have all these train cars that are switching around, and we have PRDM9 that attaches, and another um, protein called SPO11, SPO11, comes and cuts the DNA. That's supposed to happen once for every long chromosome arm, on average, per generation. That's not what happens. There's several levels of complexification that are going to happen here. First, the DNA is peeled back, only one strand. In DNA, we talk about the ends of the DNA. We have a five-primed end and a three-primed end. That deals with the five-carbon sugar, the deoxyribose is a five-carbon sugar. There's five carbons. Well, on one end of the DNA, the third carbon is at the end. But on the other end of the DNA, the fifth carbon is at the end. So when we talk about when genes are being translated or when transcription is happening, that always happens from the five primed toward the three primed direction. The other strand though, because DNA is two stranded, that's only the reading frame. The other strand, the complementary strand, well, it's five primed, three primed in the other direction. But here's what happens. SPO11 cuts the DNA after PRDM9 tells it where to go. And then the DNA is peeled back from the five prime to three prime direction Two to 4,000 letters of DNA are peeled back. Now we have single-stranded DNA, which is very unstable. But single-stranded DNA is also very sticky, and it will stick to the double-stranded DNA of the other chromosome, of the other copy. It'll stick right in there. Now we have triple-stranded DNA, and somehow the cell says, okay, well, I'm going to trim back the other copy of the DNA, and I'm going to link these two chromosomes together, and it's going to cut it, it's going to rearrange things, and you're talking about lots of scrambling, a lot of very complex mechanisms, and hundreds if not thousands of proteins and RNAs are involved in this process. Without those things functioning perfectly, you're dead, or at least you can't have babies, let's say. So we have PRDM not attaching, SPO11 cutting, 
what's called resectioning of the DNA that's peeling back from the five prime to three prime direction on one strand, about two or 4,000 letters, invasion of that sticky single-stranded DNA into the other chromosome, and then cutting and splicing and flipping the chromosomes around and then fixing everything because that DNA has to be filled in again. You've got 4,000 letters of single-stranded DNA that has to be remade well. Here comes DNA polymerase, which is an error-prone molecule. Yeah, you see, recombination produces lots of errors. A lot of mutations because of recombination. The recombination hotspots in a genome are also mutational hotspots. There are single-letter changes called SNPs or single-nucleotide polymorphisms. There are indels or insertions and deletions of, of small pieces of DNA and segmental variations, which are larger um, duplications, triplications, or deletions of, of things. You get all these mutations happening at recombination hotspots because the DNA has to be repaired, has to be filled in, and all the cuts need to be re-annealed. And all of those systems are prone to error because biology is messy. So we have something that's necessary for reproduction, but it's also error-prone. So strangely, PRDM9, its own action, tends to erode the PRDM9 recognition site. So there should have been more recombination in the past there is now. Also, if PRDM9, the gene, is only one copy of that gene in your genome, if that mutates, you have a new allele. You might change the recognition site. Oh, so all of a sudden, if you have a new allele, you could get recombination in completely different places. You could get recombination in more places or fewer places, depending upon the allele that you carry. Now, the most common allele is called A, but there is also B, and there's many others. This raises lots of questions about human history. Which alleles do we carry in the past? Has there ever been a person with a different allele or a population with a different allele that would cause recombination to be different, the recombination patterns to be different? Well, if that's true, then this out of Africa question comes up. How do we know that recombination has always been the same rate in all populations at all times? I did a video last January, Sexual Recombination, Complex Genetics, and Challenges to the Out-of-Africa Theory. That was January of 2023. Going back to this same idea again. Now, that was based on the work of, um, of Hinch et al., the Hinch Lab. They did a paper called Landscape of Recombination in African Americans way back in 2011. And what they realized is that Africans have more PRDM9 sites and more recombination per generation. But now the Hinch Lab comes back again with a brand new paper. This is Hinch et al. 2023. Meiotic breaks drive multifaceted mutagenesis in the human germline. They looked at 3,976 parent-child trios. So both parents and the child had their genome sequenced in Iceland. Now, we can't use the Icelandic modern population as a proxy for all of humans across all of time, but we can use it as an idea generating system. They looked at nearly what's called 4,000 parent-child trios. They looked at the mutations. You can easily see recombination because if you have a chunk of letters that are only found in dad and all of a sudden you get a chunk of letters that's only found in the mom, well, you can see that in the child. So you can see the recombination spots and they found a bunch of mutations. They also looked at 70,000 additional genomes. They're looking at the recombination hotspots and are seeing lots of mutations, very characteristic mutations. But then they realize that there's a lot of mutations happening at the recombination spots where recombination didn't actually happen that generation. What happens is you don't get 
one cut per long chromosome arm, you get dozens. You get like 10 times or more cuts than you get recombinations. Every one of those cuts could be mutagenic. Every one of those cuts is a potential for more mistakes happening. And so, yeah, you tend to get mutations at hot spots, but you tend to get mutations at more hot spots than the recombination that actually happened. Oh, that's very, very interesting. That raises so many questions, so many questions. So if you had more PRDM9 recognition sites, you'll probably get more cuts per generation, even if you don't necessarily get more recombination per generation. But African-Americans, therefore Africans by proxy, do look like they get more recombinations per generation, which means the fact that they have smaller recombination blocks, that they have more diversity, and the fact that the rest of the world looks like they have a subset of the recombination blocks found in Africans could simply be explained by the fact that they might have more recombination per generation. Those, that's something that the out-of-Africa theorists use a lot to support their out-of-Africa theory. The diversity and the small block size in Africans. What if they just have more recombination per generation? Or what if they just have more cuts, even if they have less, uh, the same amount of recombination per generation? Those are questions that someone needs to answer. Someone with a, at least a gradual level understanding of genetics, this is a great project for you to do. Hey, if you're a Christian, you're looking for maybe a, a senior thesis or a graduate um, a, well, a project, look at recombination in people across the world. Because if you can discover that recombination is not the same in all people, that's going to reflect directly back on the Adam and Eve model of, of human origins. Now, if it turns out to not be true, and most people across the world do have an average amount of recombination, fine. But I highly suspect that is not going to be true. I highly suspect that um, there are some, I don't want to say racial, but I want to say population level differences in these things. And why should there not be? Why would anyone expect all people to be the same? I mean, if evolution is true, wouldn't the evolution of recombination also be at play? Wouldn't natural selection uh, be applying to the mutations found in the PRDM9 gene? Wouldn't different environmental factors or different, you know, average age of reproduction in populations be at play? Yeah, all those things would be at play. Hinch et al. also discovered sexual level differences in recombination rates. Males have less recombination than females, and that's not just because they don't have recombination on the X chromosome. They have less recombination in general. And they figured out that females have less recombination as they age, specifically in the middle of the chromosomes. So being that biblical ages are not modern ages, and being that there are age-related differences, uh, that might be causing some problems as we're trying to look at modern people and extrapolate backwards in human history. Again, another project for someone to look at. There's some fascinating stuff here. So maybe even some low-hanging fruit. Maybe the evolutionists haven't looked at it. Christian, come on, get out there and start studying. And if you're in some Christian school, or even if not in a Christian school, but you are a believer and you have any access to genetics or a program or a class, you can have some things to look at. I'm just throwing stuff out there for you to think about. Oh, but there's so much more. They also discovered that about one out of every four sperm, maybe one out of every 12 eggs, has a mutation caused by this process. Now, most eggs and sperm have 30 to 50 mutations each, so each individual gets between 60 and 100. That's a good average for modern people. But um, some of those mutations are not caused by cosmic rays or smoking or um, 
uh, water or oxygen damage to the DNA. They're caused by the very process that keeps us alive, that allows us to have children, and the children have children. So this means that we are decaying. Like We all know uh, genetic entropy is there for us, just staring us in the face. Mutations are happening. Some of them are coming from uh, this recombination pathway and DNA repair stuff. That's the other cool thing. They've learned that the DNA repair systems, which we now know are extremely complicated, are also involved in uh, sexual reproduction because you have to cut the DNA, you have to peel it back, you have to fix it again, you have to rearrange things, you have to check and double check. They also saw a lot of asymmetries in the mutation patterns. Yeah, you get a lot of mutations right there at those cut sites, but to the left and to the right, you get different types of mutations. And so now you might be able to look at parts of the genome that don't recombine now and say, oh, there's some mutations there. Oh, that must have been an old hotspot. I wonder, I really wonder how many dead hotspots are in the genome, how many we used to have, what the recombination rate used to be compared to what it is now. I wonder if there's been any allelic shifts in that PRDM9 so that we now have different recombination places than, than we did in the past. I'm sure other people looked at that. I'm pretty sure that some papers have been written, but there's more work that can be and needs to be done. I've spoken about Africa, many times on this channel, including uh, an article on creation.com, African Origins and the Rise of Carnivory, or that sexual reproduction, uh, complex genetics, and challenges to the out of Africa theory video that I talked about a little while ago, or another one I did, did we evolve from 10,000 people in Africa? Or another one, was Africa the cradle of humanity? Or another one, did Eve live in Southern Africa? This Africa question must be addressed by the creationist community. It is not easy. Not at all. If you just take a, the, the top-level approach and don't really look at the information very deeply, you'll see that Africa has longer branches, they have more diversity, they have smaller recombination blocks. It looks like, from first principles, an older population. But when you start looking at further details, you realize that all of those things are assumptions. Assumptions based on uniformity. The assumptions based on the thought that all things today are also true in the past, which I simply don't believe. And I've even, even if I was not a Bible believer, I would have no reason to believe that because things should shift and ebb over time, including the systems that produce recombination. So how does it apply to the creation and evolution debate? Well, based on what I've just said, we have a super complex system involving hundreds, if not thousands of proteins and RNAs an error in any number of different places in those systems will ca catastrophically destroy the system. It's a system that's not likely to have evolved in a stepwise process because there's too many leaps of technology. So the origin of the system is completely up in the air. The existence of the system depends upon the maintenance of the system, which is a whole other suite of problems. That's the, that's the DNA repair systems we talked about. There's unbelievably, no, sorry, I'm trying not to use an argument for incredulity here, but it's true. It's an unbelievably complex system to evolve by itself. So Mr. Evolutionist, look, you have a module for modification. We got that. It's called mutation and natural selection, descent with modification, fine. But where is the algorithm for complexification? Where's your build algorithm? We have a modification algorithm. We're missing the build algorithm. That's the essence of the creation evolution debate. We, who cares that things can change? Who cares about natural selection? It's the degree of change. 
How much can selection actually do? Where do complex systems come from and how do complex systems arise from simple systems? And consider that bacteria have a much faster reproduction rate than a human and they dominate all ecosystems. Why on earth would humans or complex systems, multicellular organisms ever arise? That's the essence of the creation evolution debate. It's the origin of complex systems and where is the build algorithm? Well, I hope that was encouraging to some of you. This is my 89th episode. I want to get to 90 by the end of the year, but I fell a little bit short, so forgive me for not producing so much material, but 89 episodes. And every single one of these, I'm trying to look at the amazing details in biology because biology is the most amazing thing that God made. When we look at ourselves, we look at uh, how we're made, the complexity of human life, even bacterial life, the amazing uh, subsystems and the, uh, the proteins and the enzymes and DNA copying and recombination, sexual development, sexual reproduction. It's just awe-inspiring. It really is. I, mean, I sit back and I say, I cannot believe that God did this. I couldn't do it. There's no way on earth I could even come close to doing anything that God did. Now, the skeptic has to say, oh, well, just chance did it. Well, that is not intellectually satisfying, Mr. Skeptic. No, this is something that had to arise through a mind because life is incredibly well-designed and incredibly complicated, and it defies all attempts as simplistic explanations. If you've enjoyed watching or listening to Biblical Genetics, thank you so much. If you'd like to help financially support my show, uh, there's uh, some links below. This will be a link to buymeacoffee.com, and someone just recently bought me a lot of coffees. Thank you, sir. That was a shock and a surprise, and I really appreciate it. But my monthly support comes from patreon.com. I have a, a cadre of dedicated supporters. Thank you so much. I could not be here without you, and this one is for you. I hope in some way I've encouraged somebody. Be blessed, and praise God as you're studying biology. Thank you.